Part two of Prelude by Catherine Mansfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Four. They were taken off to bed by the grandmother. She went first with a candle. The stairs rang to their climbing feet. Isabel and Lottie lay in a room to themselves. Keisha curled in her grandmother's soft bed. Aren't there going to be any sheets, my grandma? No, not tonight. It's tickly, said Keisha, but it's like Indians. She dragged her grandmother down to her and kissed her under the chin. Come to bed soon and be my Indian brave. What a silly you are, said the old woman, tucking her in as she loved to be tucked. Aren't you going to leave me a candle? No. Shh, go to sleep. Well, can't I have the door left open? She rolled herself up into a round, but she did not go to sleep. From all over the house came the sound of steps. The house itself creaked and popped. Loud, whispering voices came from downstairs. Once she heard Aunt Beryl's rush of high laughter, and once she heard a loud trumpeting from Burnell blowing his nose. Outside the window, hundreds of black cats with yellow eyes sat in the sky watching her. But she was not frightened. Lottie was saying to Isabel, I'm going to say my prayers in bed tonight. No, you can't, Lottie, Isabel was very firm. God only excuses you saying your prayers in bed if you've got a temperature. So Lottie yielded. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon the little child. Pity me, simple Lizzie, suffer me to come to thee. And then they lay down back to back, their little behinds just touching, and fell asleep. Standing in a pool of moonlight, Beryl Fairfield undressed herself. She was tired, but she pretended to be more tired than she really was. Letting her clothes fall, pushing back with a languid gesture her warm, heavy hair. Oh, how tired I am, very tired. She shut her eyes a moment, but her lips smiled. Her breath rose and fell in her breast like two fanning wings. The window was wide open, it was warm, and somewhere out there in the garden a young man, dark and slender, with mocking eyes, tiptoed among the bushes, and gathered the flowers into a big bouquet, and slipped under her window, and held it up to her. She saw herself bending forward. He thrust his head among the bright, waxy flowers, sly and laughing. No, no, said Beryl. She turned from the window and dropped her nightgown over her head. How frightfully unreasonable Stanley is sometimes, she thought, buttoning. And then, as she lay down, there came the old thought, the cruel thought. Ah, if only she had money of her own. A young man, immensely rich, has just arrived from England. He meets her quite by chance. The new governor is unmarried. There is a ball at Government House... Who is that exquisite creature in O oh, the Neil Satin? Beryl Fairfield. The thing that pleases me, said Stanley, leaning against the side of the bed and giving himself a good scratch on his shoulders and back before turning in, is that I've got the place dirt cheap, Linda. I was talking about it to little Wally Bell today, and he said he simply could not understand why they had accepted my figure. You see, land about here is bound to become more and more valuable. In about ten years' time, of course, we shall have to go very slow and cut down expenses as fine as possible. 
not asleep, are you? No, dear, I've heard every word. He sprang into bed, leaned over her and blew out the candle. Good night, Mr. Businessman, said she, and she took hold of his head by the ears and gave him a quick kiss. Her faint, faraway voice seemed to come from a deep well. Good night, darling. He slipped his arm under her neck and drew her to him. Yes, clasp me, said the faint voice from the deep well. Pat the handyman sprawled in his little room behind the kitchen. His sponge bag, coat and trousers hung from the door peg like a hanged man. From the edge of the blanket his twisted toes protruded, and on the floor beside him there was an empty cane birdcage. He looked like a comic picture. Honk, honk, came from the servant girl. She had adenoids. Last to go to bed was the grandmother. What, not asleep yet? No, I'm waiting for you, said Keisha. The old woman sighed and lay down beside her. Keisha thrust her head under the grandmother's arm and gave a little squeak. But the old woman only pressed her faintly and sighed again, took out her teeth and put them in a glass of water beside her on the floor. In the garden came tiny owls perched on the branches of a lace-bark tree called More Pork, More Pork, and Far away in the bush there sounded a harsh, rapid chatter. Ha-ha! Ha-ha! Five. Dawn came sharp and chill with red clouds on a faint green sky and drops of water on every leaf and blade. A breeze blew over the garden, dropping dew and dropping petals shivered over the drenched paddocks, and was lost in a sombre bush. In the sky some tiny stars floated for a moment, and then they were gone. They were dissolved like bubbles. And plain to be heard in the early quiet was the sound of the creek in the paddock, running over the brown stones, running in and out of the sandy hollows, hiding under clumps of dark berry bushes spilling into a swamp of yellow water-flowers and cresses. And then, at the first beam of sun, the birds began. Big, cheeky birds, starlings and minas, whistled on the lawns. The little birds, the goldfinches and linnets with fantails, flicked from bough to bough. A lovely kingfisher perched on the paddock fence, preening his rich beauty, and a tui sang his three notes and laughed and sang them again. "'How loud the birds are,' said Linda in her dream. She was walking with her father through a green paddock sprinkled with daisies. Suddenly he bent down and parted the grasses and showed her a tiny ball of fluff just at her feet. "'Oh, Papa, the darling!' She made a cup of her hands and caught the tiny bird and stroked its head with her finger. It was quite tame. But a funny thing happened. As she stroked, it began to swell. It ruffled and pouched. It grew bigger and bigger, and its round eyes seemed to smile knowingly at her. Now her arms were hardly wide enough to hold it, and she dropped it into her apron. It had become a baby with a big naked head and a gaping bird mouth opening and shutting. 
Her father broke into a loud, clattering laugh, and she woke to see Burnell standing by the windows, rattling the Venetian blind up to the very top. "'Hello,' he said. "'Didn't wake you, did I? "'Nothing much wrong with the weather this morning?' He was enormously pleased. Weather like this set a final seal on his bargain. He felt somehow that he had bought the lovely day, too, got it chucked in dirt cheap with the house and ground. He dashed off to his bath, and Linda turned over and raised herself on one elbow to see the room by daylight. All the furniture had found a place, all the old paraphernalia, as she expressed it. Even the photographs were on the mantelpiece, and the medicine bottles on the shelf above the washstand. Her clothes lay across a chair, her outdoor things, a purple cape and a round hat with a plume in it. Looking at them, she wished that she was going away from this house, too, and she saw herself driving away from them all in a little buggy, driving away from everybody, and not even waving. Back came Stanley, girt with a towel, glowing and slapping his thighs. He pitched the wet towel on top of her hat and cape, and, standing firm in the exact centre of a square of sunlight, he began to do his exercises deep breathing, bending and squatting like a frog, and shooting out his legs. He was so delighted with his firm, obedient body that he hit himself on the chest and gave a loud, ah! But this amazing vigour seemed to set him worlds away from Linda. She lay on the white tumbled bed and watched him as if from the clouds. Oh, damn! Oh, blast! said Stanley, who had butted into a crisp white shirt, only to find that some idiot had fastened the neckband and he was caught. He stalked over to Linda, waving his arms. "'You look like a big, fat turkey,' said she. "'Fat? I like that,' said Stanley. "'I haven't a square inch of fat on me. Feel that.' "'It's rock. It's iron,' mocked she. "'You'd be surprised,' said Stanley, as though this were intensely interesting. At the number of chaps at the club who have got a corporation. Young chaps, you know, men of my age. He began parting his bushy ginger hair, his blue eyes fixed and round in the glass, his knees bent, because the dressing-table was always confounded a bit too low for him. Little Wally Bell, for instance, and he straightened, describing upon himself an enormous curve with the hairbrush. I must say I have a perfect horror... "'My dear, don't worry. You'll never be fat. You are far too energetic.' "'Yes, yes, I suppose that's true,' said he, comforted for the hundredth time, and, taking a pearl a penknife out of his pocket, he began to pare his nails. "'Breakfast, Stanley,' Barrow was at the door. "'Oh, Linda, Mother says you are not to get up yet.' She popped her head in at the door. She had a big piece of syringa stuck through her hair. "'Everything we left on the veranda last night is simply sopping this morning.' You should see poor dear mother wringing out the tables and the chairs. However, there is no harm done. This with the faintest glance at Stanley. Have you told Pat to have the buggy round in time? It's a good six and a half miles to the office. I can imagine what this early start for the office will be like, thought Linda. It will be a very high pressure indeed. Pat, Pat, she heard the servant girl calling, but Pat was evidently hard to find. The silly voice went ba-baying through the garden. Linda did not rest again until the final slam of the front door told her that Stanley was really gone.
Later, she heard her children playing in the garden. Lottie's stolid, compact little voice cried, Keisha! Isabel! She was always getting lost or losing people, only to find them again, to her great surprise, round the next tree or the next corner. Oh, there you are, after all. They had been turned out after breakfast and told not to come back to the house until they were called. Isabel wheeled a neat pram-load of prim dolls, and Lottie was allowed for a great treat to walk beside her, holding the doll's parasol over the face of the wax one. "'Where are you going to, Keisha?' asked Isabel, who longed to find some light and menial duty that Keisha might perform, and so be roped in under her government. "'Oh, just away,' said Keisha. Then she did not hear them any more. What a glare there was in the room! She hated blinds pulled up to the top at any time, but in the morning it was intolerable. She turned over to the wall, and idly, with one finger, she traced a poppy on the wallpaper with a leaf and a stem and a fat bursting bud. In the quiet, and under her tracing finger, the poppy seemed to come alive. She could feel the sticky, silky petals, the stem hurry like a gooseberry skin, the rough leaf and the tight glazed bud. Things had a habit of coming alive like that. Not only large substantial things like furniture, but curtains and the patterns of stuffs and the fringes of quilts and cushions. How often she had seen the tassel fringe of her quilt change into a funny procession of dancers with priests attending. For there were some tassels that did not dance at all but walked stately, bent forward as if praying or chanting. How often the medicine bottles had turned into a row of little men with brown top hats on, and the washstand jug had a way of sitting in the basin like a fat bird in a round nest. I dreamed about birds last night, thought Linda. What was it? She had forgotten. But the strangest part of this coming alive of things was what they did. They listened. They seemed to swell out with some mysterious, important content. And when they were full, she felt that they smiled. But it was not for her only, their sly, secret smile. They were members of a secret society, and they smiled among themselves. Sometimes, when she had fallen asleep in the daytime, she woke and could not lift a finger, could not even turn her eyes to left or right, because they were there. Sometimes, when she went out of a room and left it empty, she knew as she clicked the door to that they were filling it. And there were times in the evenings when she was upstairs, perhaps, and everybody else was down, when she could hardly escape from them. Then she could not hurry. She could not hum a tune. If she tried to say ever so carelessly, bother that old thimble, they were not deceived. They knew how frightened she was. They saw how she turned her head away as she passed the mirror. What Linda always felt was that they wanted something of her, and she knew that if she gave herself up and was quiet, more than quiet, silent, motionless, something would really happen. It's very quiet now, she thought. She opened her eyes wide, and she heard the silence spinning its soft, endless web. How lightly she breathed. 
She scarcely had to breathe at all. Yes. Everything had come alive, down to the minutest, tiniest particle, and she did not feel her bed. She floated, held up in the air. Only she seemed to be listening with her wide-open, watchful eyes, waiting for someone to come who just did not come, watching for something to happen that just did not happen. Six. In the kitchen at the long deal table under the two windows, old Mrs. Fairfield was washing the breakfast dishes. The kitchen window looked out onto a big grass patch that led down to the vegetable garden and the rhubarb beds. On one side the grass patch was bordered by the scullery and wash house, and over this whitewashed lean-to there grew a knotted vine. She had noticed yesterday that a few tiny corkscrew tendrils had come right through some cracks in the scullery ceiling, and all the windows of the lean-to had a thick frill of ruffled green. "'I am very fond of a grapevine,' declared Mrs. Fairfield. "'But I do not think that grapes will ripen here. It takes Australian sun.' And she remembered how Beryl, when she was a baby, had been picking some white grapes from the vine on the back veranda of their Tasmanian house, and had been stung on the leg by a huge red ant. She saw Beryl in a little plaid dress with red ribbon tie-ups on the shoulders, screaming so dreadfully that half the street rushed in. And how the child's leg had swelled. T-t-t-t, Mrs. Fairfield caught her breath remembering. Poor child, how terrifying it was and she set her lips tight and went over to the stove for some more hot water. The water frothed up in a big soapy bowl with pink and blue bubbles on top of the foam. Old Mrs. Fairfield's arms were bare to the elbow and stained a bright pink. She wore a grey foulard dress patterned with large purple pansies, a white linen apron and a high cap shaped like a jelly mound of white muslin. At her throat there was a silver crescent moon with five little owls seated on it, and round her neck she wore a watch-guard made of black beads. It was hard to believe that she had not been in that kitchen for years she was so much a part of it. She put the crocks away with a sure, precise touch, moving leisurely and ample from the stove to the dresser, looking into the pantry and the larder as though they were not an unfamiliar corner. When she had finished... Everything in the kitchen had become part of a series of patterns. She stood in the middle of the room, wiping her hands on a check cloth. A smile beamed on her lips. She thought it looked very nice, very satisfactory. "'Mother, mother, are you there?' called Beryl. "'Yes, dear, do you want me?' "'No, I'm coming.' And Beryl rushed in, very flushed, dragging with her two big pictures. "'Mother!' Whatever can I do with these awful, hideous Chinese paintings that Chung Hua gave Stanley when he went bankrupt? It's absurd to say that they are valuable, because they were hanging in Chung Hua's fruit shop for months before. I can't make out why Stanley wants them kept. I'm sure he thinks them just as hideous as we do, but it's because of the frames, she said spitefully. I suppose he thinks the frames might fetch something some day or other. Why don't you hang them in the passage, suggested Mrs. Fairfield. They would not be much seen there. I can't. There is no room. I've hung all the photographs of his office there, before and after building, and the signed photos of his business friends, and that awful enlargement of Isabel lying on a mat in her singlet. Her angry glance swept the placid kitchen. I know what I'll do. I'll hang them here. 
I will tell Stanley they got a little damp in the moving and I have put them in here for the time being. She dragged a chair forward, jumped on it, took a hammer and a big nail out of her pinafore pocket and banged away. There, that is enough. Hand me the picture, mother. One moment, child. Her mother was wiping over the carved ebony frame. Oh, mother, really, you need not dust them. It would take years to dust all those little holes. And she frowned at the top of her mother's head and bit her lip with impatience. Mother's deliberate way of doing things was simply maddening. It was old age, she supposed, loftily. At last the two pictures were hung side by side. She jumped off the chair, stowing away the little hammer. They don't look so bad there, do they? said she. And at any rate, nobody need gaze at them except Pat and the servant girl. Have I got a spider's web in my face, mother? I've been poking into that cupboard under the stairs, and now something keeps tickling my nose. But before Mrs. Fairfield had time to look, Beryl had turned away. Someone tapped on the window. Linda was there, nodding and smiling. They heard the latch of the scullery door lift, and she came in. She had no hat on. Her hair stood upon her head in curling rings, and she was wrapped up in an old cashmere shawl. "'I'm so hungry,' said Linda. "'Where can I get something to eat, Mother? "'This is the first time I've been in the kitchen. "'It says Mother all over. "'Everything is in pairs.' "'I will make you some tea,' said Mrs. Fairfield, "'spreading a clean napkin over a corner of the table, "'and Beryl can have a cup with you. "'Beryl, do you want half my gingerbread?' "'Linda waved the knife at her. "'Beryl, do you like the house now that we are here?' "'Oh, yes.' I like the house immensely, and the garden is beautiful, but it feels very far away from everything to me. I can't imagine people coming out from town to see us in that dreadful jolting bus, and I am sure there is not anyone here to come and call. Of course it does not matter to you, because... But there is the buggy, said Linda. Pat can drive you into town whenever you like. That was a consolation, certainly, but there was something at the back of Beryl's mind, something that she did not even put into words for herself. Oh, well, at any rate it won't kill us, she said dryly, putting down her empty cup and standing up and stretching. I am going to hang curtains. And she ran away singing. How many thousand birds I see that sing aloud from every tree. Birds I see that sing aloud from every tree. But when she reached the dining room she stopped singing. Her face changed. It became gloomy and sullen. One may as well rot here as anywhere else, she muttered savagely, digging the stiff brass safety pins into the red serge curtains. The two left in the kitchen were quiet for a while. Linda leaned her cheek on her fingers and watched her mother. She thought her mother looked wonderfully beautiful with her back to the leafy window. There was something comforting in the sight of her that Linda felt she could never do without. She needed the sweet smell of her flesh, and the soft feel of her cheeks, and her arms and shoulders still softer. She loved the way her hair curled, silver at her forehead, lighter at her neck, and bright brown still in the big coil under the muslin cap. Exquisite were her mother's hands, and the two rings she wore seemed to melt into her creamy skin. And she was always so fresh, so delicious. The old woman could bear nothing but linen next to her body, and she bathed it in cold water, winter and summer. 
"'Isn't there anything for me to do?' asked Linda. "'No, darling. I wish you would go into the garden and give an eye to your children, but that I know you will not do.' "'Of course I will. But you know Isabel is much more grown-up than any of us.' "'Yes, but Keisha is not,' said Mrs. Fairfield. "'Oh, Keisha has been tossed by a bull hours ago,' said Linda, winding herself up in her shawl again. "'But no.' Keisha had seen a bull through a hole in a knot of wood in the paling that separated the tennis lawn from the paddock, but she had not liked the bull frightfully, so she had walked away back through the orchard, up the grassy slope, along the path by the lace-bark tree, and so into the spread, tangled garden. She did not believe that she would ever not get lost in this garden. Twice she had found her way back to the big iron gates they had driven through the night before, and then had turned to walk up the drive that led to the house, but there were so many little paths on either side. On one side they all led into a tangle of tall dark trees and strange bushes with flat velvet leaves and feathery cream flowers that buzzed with flies when you shook them. This was the frightening side, and no garden at all. The little paths here were wet and clay, with tree roots spanned across them like the marks of big fowl's feet but on the other side of the drive there was a high box border, and the paths had box edges, and all of them led into a deeper and deeper tangle of flowers. The camellias were in bloom, white and crimson and pink, and white striped with flashing leaves. You could not see a leaf on the syringa bushes for the white clusters. The roses were in flower, gentlemen's buttonhole roses, little white ones, but far too full of insects to hold under anyone's nose pink monthly roses with a ring of fallen petals round the bushes, cabbage roses on thick stalks, moss roses always in bud, pink smooth beauties opening curl on curl, red ones so dark they seemed to turn black as they fell, and a certain exquisite cream kind with a slender red stem and bright scarlet leaves. There were clumps of fairy bells and all kinds of geraniums, and there were little trees of verbena and bluish lavender bushes, and a bed of pelargoniums with velvet eyes and leaves like moths' wings. There was a bed of nothing but mignonette and another of nothing but pansies, borders of double and single daisies, and all kinds of little tufty plants she had never seen before. The red-hot pokers were taller than she. The Japanese sunflowers grew in a tiny jungle. She sat down on one of the box borders. By pressing hard at first it made a nice seat. But how dusty it was inside. Keisha bent down to look and sneezed and rubbed her nose. And then she found herself at the top of the rolling, grassy slope that led down to the orchard. She looked down at the slope a moment. Then she lay down on her back, gave a squeak, and rolled over and over into the thick, flowery orchard grass. As she lay waiting for things to stop spinning, she decided to go up to the house and ask the servant girl for an empty matchbox. She wanted to make a surprise for the grandmother. First she would put a leaf inside with a big violet lying on it. Then she would put very small white picotti, perhaps on each side of the violet, and then she would sprinkle some lavender on the top, but not to cover their heads. She often made these surprises for the grandmother, and they were always most successful. Do you want a match, my granny? Why, yes, child, I believe a match is just what I'm looking for. 
The grandmother slowly opened the box and came upon the picture inside. Good gracious, child, how you astonished me. I can make her one every day here, she thought, scrambling up on the grass on her slippery shoes. But on her way back to the house, she came to that island that lay in the middle of the drive, dividing the drive into two arms that met in front of the house. The island was made of grass banked up high. Nothing grew on the top except one huge plant with thick, grey-green, thorny leaves, and out of the middle there sprang up a tall, stout stem. Some of the leaves of the plant were so old that they curled up in the air no longer. They turned back, they were split and broken. Some of them lay flat and withered on the ground. Whatever could it be? She had never seen anything like it before. She stood and stared. And then she saw her mother coming down the path. Mother, what is it? asked Keisha. Linda looked up at the fat, swelling plant with its cruel leaves and fleshy stem. High above them, as though becalmed in the air, and yet holding so fast to the earth it grew from, it might have had claws instead of roots. The curling leaves seemed to be hiding something. The blind stem cut into the air as if no wind could ever shake it. That is an aloe, Keisha, said her mother. Does it ever have any flowers? Yes, Keisha, and Linda smiled down at her and half shut her eyes. Once every hundred years. End of part two.